2: I'm so excited to be back in your earbuds again this week, and thank you so much for tuning in. As always, it means the world to me. I know you have lots of podcast listening options, and I'm just so grateful and humbled that you are here listening to this one. And if the show has helped you in big or small ways, I would be so grateful if you took a quick moment to leave a quick rating or review. It literally takes a second. All you have to do is scroll down on iTunes, tap the stars, and if you have 30 more seconds, leave a quick review. And if you listen on Stitcher, you can also review, although I don't necessarily know how to do that. I don't have Stitcher. I have an iPhone, but I think you can do it from the app and definitely from the website as well, stitcher.com, and then just search for Love Life Connection there. And it really just means the world. And I love hearing your feedback because it really just helps me to know what you like and love about the show so that I can keep doing more of that. So thank you. Thank you. And I am so excited about today's guest that I have on the show. And I know it's getting old. I'm always excited about everything that I do on the podcast. but That's because I love it. And because I work so hard on creating amazing content for you. But this topic just feels particularly close to home for me right now. And I think that's just why I'm so excited to introduce this topic to you to introduce my guest to you because it's just so so personal. It's been a really big part of my life over the past, I don't know, eight months or so. So this topic is not something that's around relationship specific. It's not about, you know, mindset or clearing blocks or inner child stuff. And that's obviously the core of this podcast. But this is a very adjacent topic, I believe. And we're going to talk about fertility, and your menstrual cycles and birth control and IVF. Because That is probably something that you have thought about in your own life and had to make some important decisions about in your own life as well. If you are a biological woman who is sexually active, you have probably had to have some internal dialogue or conversations with your doctor or friends around what birth control method that you're going to use, assuming that you just don't want a bunch of kids from you know everyone that you might have sex with, right? So, last year, probably around the summer or so, I was mindlessly scrolling Instagram, and you know, it was like one of those mindless things. It was probably 10 30 at night. I really probably should have already been asleep, but here I was scrolling through Instagram stories, and you know how people can share a post onto their stories. And so, someone had shared this other woman's post, and I don't remember what the post was, but it was about something on birth control. At the time, I had been on the arm implant, and I really, really hated it. I was pretty much always bleeding, but I had had so much I don't want to say trauma but just a lot of yeah I guess I could say trauma I've been pregnant twice once after the morning after pill once while I was on the copper IUD and so this idea of getting pregnant was just terrifying to me and so after the copper IUD incident I went to Planned Parenthood and I was like give me the strongest birth control you got because this is crazy I'm now like that 0.1% or whatever I do not want to be pregnant when I don't want to be pregnant And so they put me on the arm implant and I freaking hated it. It just made me bloated and feel gross and I bled all the time. But for a long time, that's what I thought my only option was because here I was being fertile myrtle getting pregnant on two different forms of barrier methods that were supposed to prevent me from being pregnant. And at the same time, I also knew that within the next six months or so, my husband and I were probably going to start trying to have kids. And so this idea of birth control, when was I going to take it out? It was really bothering me. It was just on my mind. And so I saw this post and I clicked through. And you know how that can go sometimes. I clicked through. It led me to the post. It led me to a website, to a blog. And then before I knew it, I was reading her book. I had downloaded it on my Kindle. And the next morning at 8 a.m., I made a call to my doctor to get my arm implant out because it just completely opened my eyes to so much information about birth control and what that can do to the body and why it's actually really important to have your menstrual cycle. It's actually a really important vital sign in your body. And I also learned that it could, you know, delay fertility and knowing that my husband and I were wanting to have kids soon, all of this just like. I guess it did kind of panic me, but I guess it was in a good way. It wasn't like fear mongering was in a way of like, wow, I actually need to learn some stuff because I thought I knew what I needed to know, but I clearly did not know what I needed to know. And it drove me into action. And then I just couldn't help thinking about you all. And I know many of you are in your mid to late thirties, even early forties, and you want to have children someday. And I just want to make sure that you have this information so that you can make a true informed consent and make the best choices for you and your body and you your future family. Because if you're in your mid thirties or early forties, and you're still using birth control, I think it's really important, you know, that there could be delayed fertility. And then also you're, you're trying to get your fertility back. But there's also the age factor at that point, And it can just feel like a lot. And so the sooner you get this information, I felt the better. So I read the book probably within like three days and I loved it. And so I emailed the author, Lisa, I emailed her and her assistant wrote me back. And I was like, can she please come on the podcast? I would love to have her really want my audience to meet her. And here she is. And I'm just so, so excited for you to learn this. And we're going to talk about birth control. We're going to talk about natural forms of fertility. And we're going to talk about birth control, like what it does biologically to the body, what it can do to fertility when you want to have kids. And we're also going to talk about even if you don't want to have kids, or you already have kids and you're not interested in having more kids. We're going to talk about why it's still really important to understand birth control, understand your menstrual cycle, because it's kind of like you know it might be inconvenient to poop, right? But like you need to poop because it's a natural bodily function. But also, if your pooping is kind of off, then it gives you a sense: okay, something is going on. I need to figure it out. And your menstrual cycle can be very much the same way. Yeah, sometimes it might be a quote unquote inconvenience, but if something's off, then it can set off alarm bells to something else going on, and then you have the information and the power to shift it. So this is not just for women who want to have kids within the next year or at some point or the next few years or at some point in their life. This is really for any woman who is sexually active, doesn't want her pregnancy right now, and really just wants to be able to connect with their body in a new way. And the last thing that I'll share is I have heard about the fertility awareness method for a long time. I think the first time I came across it, was 2015. So five years ago, which I know some people have been doing it since they're 20. I wish I knew about that information. Then I just didn't. So I guess it was probably 29, 30 or so. And that's when I learned about the fertility awareness method. And that was also around the time that I got pregnant when I was on the copper IUD. And at the time, I was just really, really scarred from that experience. And I just thought, the fertility awareness method was ridiculous, and why would I ever in a million years go off birth control when I couldn't stay not pregnant while on two forms of birth control, one being the morning after, one being the copper IUD. And really what I had, was doing essentially was I just didn't trust my body, I didn't trust really anything about the whole process, and I was just outsourcing this quote unquote problem, this trust problem really to something else. To so this thing that ultimately I had no control over. I didn't really have control over, you know, how effective the arm and plant or any other kind of birth control that I could have gone on. And so it really just disconnected with my body. And I mentioned in the interview with Lisa, I was like, yeah, I really believed, even when I was on it, that I could get pregnant at any time. And I knew like, yes, I know that sperm has to meet the egg and that has to happen through sexual intercourse. Like on a very logical level, yes, I knew that. But because I was so disconnected and scared about this issue and so disconnected from my body, I really could have convinced myself that I was pregnant at any time. Even if even I hadn't had sex in a while or if I'd had a period, I still could have convinced myself that I was pregnant because like, oh, well, you know, you can bleed while you're on your menstrual cycle or, you know, what if I was in a swimming pool and someone like ejaculated in the pool, like could I get pregnant? Like I was just like panicked and scared all the time about it. And so what really the fertility awareness method has allowed me to do is I actually have so much trust and faith in my body now because I know exactly where I am in my month and I just understand my cycle better. And I understand that there is literally times in your most times in your cycle where it's literally impossible to get pregnant. So this has really been a method of just me being able to reconnect with my body, trust my body again. And I don't get panicked anymore about whether or not I'm pregnant or anything because I just can connect and understand and I know where my body is in any given day during my cycle and I think that is just so liberating I think it's so empowering and I just really want to support Lisa and really anyone else teaching this to get the method and the message out cuz I think it's so so important. So as you listen to my conversation with Lisa I want you to consider some of these questions. Do you know exactly how your menstrual cycle even works? Like Could you actually describe it, not just, okay, yeah, there's an egg, it's released, and you get your period, but could you actually explain how it works and the times in your cycle when you are able and then not able to get pregnant? And did you feel like you had true informed consent when you decided to take a hormonal birth control method? And now you might think you've had informed consent, but after listening to the episode today, I want you to ask yourself again did you really have true informed consent? And finally, If you want to have children one day, especially if you're in your 30s or 40s, do you know the health of your menstrual cycles? And are you aware of the best ways to preserve your fertility? And what's your conversation? What's your relationship like with IVF and potentially freezing your eggs? All right, so keep all these questions in mind as you listen into my interview with Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so excited that you're here, and I'm so excited to talk to you and also just introduce you to my audience. I read your book sometime last year, I think in the fall, and I loved it, and it was so eye-opening, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I need my people to know who she is.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: So I've already given you a little bit of an introduction um, and the intro that I recorded separately. So people have a sense of what this conversation is going to be about, but I would really just love for you to introduce yourself so everyone knows who they're listening to and what you do in the world.
1: Well, thank you for that. So I'm Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. I'm the author of The Fifth Vital Sign. I'm a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner. And basically, in a nutshell, I support women to connect with their menstrual cycles sometimes for a specific reason. So if they're looking for a non-hormonal method of birth control that is effective, I teach fertility awareness for that purpose for women who are trying to conceive and are trying to either figure out what health information they can gain from understanding their cycles better or you know, getting the timing right, et cetera, but also for overall health. And a big part of my message is that the menstrual cycle is important whether or not you want to have kids. It's for a biological woman of reproductive age. It is an essential part of just being. So we should kind of recognize the importance of healthy menstruation for its role outside of our ability to procreate.
2: Yeah. I really like the title of your book, The Fifth Vital Sign. It's so smart because we don't think about it, but you know, when there's an emerging situation, like the EMTs will always check vital signs like pulse and whatever. But there's also other systems in our bodies that we often follow, like if our digestive track is off. Like if we have like really bad bowel movements or like our stomach always hurts, then that's like, hmm, something's wrong. <laughs> I need to do something. And our menstrual cycle is very much the same thing. And it's just a simple idea. And it's kind of like, duh, but also it was like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I never thought of it like that.
1: I mean, as soon as you think about it, it makes perfect sense. And it's often downplayed in our culture. I think one of the examples I use most often to show how crucial a healthy menstrual cycle Is with ovulation, is it what happens in the case of hypothalamic amenorrhea? So, when that's when a woman stops ovulating and therefore stops menstruating, so she stops getting her period. And it's often seen in athletes because it's characterized by stress, under eating, over exercise. So, you know, you lose your period and you might go to the doctor and the doctor might say, okay, well, let's just put you on the pill and get you you bleeding again. But what you may not know is that when you stop bleeding for six months or more, your lifetime risk of developing osteoporosis increases because your body is basically trying to send you a message, you know, like something's wrong. We need to stop reproduction because we don't, you know, reproduction is not essential for us to live. So shutting it down to try to preserve yourself. And so that's just one of many examples of why we really should be looking at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign.
2: Yeah, so before we get into it, because I want to talk about birth control, fertility awareness, all that stuff. But before we do that, I want to go back to like biology 101, or at least should be in biology 101. Don't know who it is, but can you walk us through the menstrual cycle? What happens every month in a woman's body who is a fertility age?
1: So day one of your menstrual cycle is the first day of your period. So the first day of your true flow. So, you know, many women will experience a couple days of light spotting or something like that before their actual period starts. But typically it's when you have to use something to collect your bleeding. And so in a healthy typical cycle, you would expect to bleed for anywhere from about three to seven days. And we'd expect that to kind of start out moderate to heavy and then gradually taper off. And, you know, period should be like a sentence, a beginning, middle, and an end, and then it should stop. So in a healthy cycle, your period does come to an end in that somewhere in that three to seven day period. And then you would expect to have a couple of days before you start to see your cervical fluid. So cervical fluid is one of those basic things we all should have been taught <laughs> back in junior high. And so for a woman who's not familiar with it, it can look like creamy white hand lotion, It can look like clear, stretchy, raw egg whites, and it would form a thread between your fingers. Or you may just have a feeling of lubrication. And when you go to the bathroom and wipe yourself, it just feels really slippery. So not every woman experiences her cervical fluid in the same way. So as you approach ovulation in a typical healthy cycle, you would expect to have cervical fluid anywhere from about two to seven days. And then you would expect to ovulate. And once you ovulate, you would expect your cervical fluid to dry up. So it goes back to dry, what we call dry days, where you're not really observing any of this lotiony or egg whitey, raw egg whitey stuff. And then about 12 to 14 days later, you would expect your period to come. A few things that are important just to mention in that is that in order for your cycle to be healthy, it doesn't have to be 28 days. When we look at the actual data, 28 to 29 days is about the average cycle length, but the cycle can range anywhere from about 24 to 35 days or so, and that still be within the range of normal. And so there's a lot of myths that are really important to bust about the menstrual cycle, just so that we can have a basic understanding of it.
2: And I mean, this is like a whole other topic, but just briefly, when women aren't ovulating or they're not having regular periods, what are some things either to ask your doctor or to look into in terms of lifestyle that might be reasons or culprits?
1: So it kind of depends on the pattern. I think thyroid disorders are really common and can disrupt the menstrual cycle. So, you know, if your bleeding is really, really on the heavy side and you're not sure why, or if your cycles are more often disrupted, so shorter or longer than the kind of 24 to 35 day range that we spoke about, but that would also go along with other signs, you know, like feeling Sluggish and lethargic, and all those things. So, you would have this issue, and then it would be affecting the menstrual cycle. So, you'd see the differences. So, a classic kind of air quotes, irregular cycle if your cycles are regularly longer than 35 days, if you go, you know, a year and have fewer than eight or nine periods in a year, and if you're regularly experiencing these really long cycles that is not always associated with polycystic ovary syndrome, but it's one of the classic ways that it shows up. And so PCOS is characterized by inflammation, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, and it's part of kind of an overall metabolic issue that increases your lifetime risk of developing diabetes. So it's interesting to think that this underlying metabolic issue is then causing your cycles to be irregular. And Essentially, what's happening is your ovulation is delayed. So, your ovaries are not as sensitive to those cues that, hey, it's time to go. So, those are a couple of general examples just so that you would kind of know, like, wait a minute, everybody doesn't have 45 day cycles? No, they don't. And if that's the case, you should certainly look into that because not just because it matters when you're trying to have a baby, but because it's actually linked to more serious health conditions down the line.
2: And so, then how does birth control work? And I know there's lots of different kinds. So, we'll just talk about the pill. The IUD, the um, Marina one, and then the copper, and then I guess the, the arm implant, which might be the same category as the Marina. I'm not sure.
1: Well, so there's kind of broad categories. Like the most common birth control methods are the combined oral contraceptives or combined, meaning that they have synthetic estrogens and progestins. And so that's typically like the pill, the patch, the ring. I think those are, yeah, typically the ones. So the implant, the Marina IUD, or the you know, progestin implanted IUDs, those are progestin only methods. So even though there's differences within the hormonal methods, there's three broad modes of action. So the majority of hormonal methods suppress ovulation. So either completely or partially suppress ovulation, which is very helpful (laughs) when you don't want to get pregnant, because if there's no ovulation, there's no egg. And if there's no egg, there's no baby. In addition to that, the hormonal methods, they thin the uterine lining. So in a normal cycle, when you're not on hormones, your endometrial lining will build up and mature so that it's receptive to a fertilized egg. But when you're on hormonal birth control, the uterine lining stays very thin. So even if there was an egg that managed to make its way through, it really wouldn't have anywhere to implant. And the third mode of action is actually to cause your cervix to fill with a thick mucus plug all the time. So when you're on most hormonal methods... You wouldn't really see cervical fluid, although with progestin only, so with the progestin releasing IUDs, they do not always completely suppress ovulation. So with some of those, like with the progestin releasing IUDs, a certain percentage of women stop ovulating, but a certain percentage of women continue to ovulate either regularly or sporadically. (laughs) So the mode of action is more so the thinning of the lining. And the beauty's plug.
2: Okay. So what's so interesting to me is I remember my mom talking to me about birth control. I don't know when I was in high school, maybe even college. I don't remember. And she just talked about how it was like, it was part of like the women's liberation movement back in the fifties and sixties when it became popular and came out into the marketplace. And in a lot of ways it was, cause I guess, you know, now women could have more sex and not have to worry so much about getting pregnant because if they got pregnant, we all know whose job that was to take care of the baby. And so for me, I always thought, oh yeah, birth control is like this amazing part of like being a feminist and like beating down the patriarchy and like blah, blah, blah. And I had heard about fertility awareness method, which we'll talk about later for really a long time, actually. And I was like, such crap, such crap. And, like <laughs> Now all of a sudden birth control is like this awful thing. I also just want to like, Point out, I've gotten pregnant twice: once after the morning-after pill, and then once actually on the IUD.
1: <laughs> oh, jeez.
2: So, I mean, I'm like at point whatever percent or or whatever, but that made me even feel like even more. Oh, I need to get on the strongest form of birth control rather than like actually, maybe I should just reconnect with my body and learn about my menstrual cycle, and you know, go from there. And and, and we'll get into that. But what I want to touch on a little bit and paint a picture for is like there's a lot of social and cultural issues with with birth control and it's not like this whole feminist women's liberation thing that we thought it was so can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah I mean it's a it's an important and complex conversation because certainly by talking about the pill in a critical way there are people that come out of the woodwork and say like you're a feminist how could you do that and I've certainly had those conversations I remember one of my first kind of boyfriends when I was in my early 20s His mom was right at that age where this had literally been for her the revolution. And here I was, this young, new feminist that was like, actually, (laughs) you know, for me, in my generation, the pill means something different. So I think that we should acknowledge the role of the pill and how it shifted the world and how it shifted the experience of women. I think that it's really important to acknowledge that its role in the feminist movement. However, I don't think it's... (laughs) it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for today's young feminists. And I think that's what it's okay to kind of look at it critically, because when I'm talking about the pill critically and other types of birth control, I talk about the side effects, you know, and I talk about informed consent. So when you look at the history, the first pill came on the market in 1960 and the beta testers, as I'm calling them, but the women who tested, you know, the pill before it was released, So picture, you know, mid to late 50s, there's never been a pill, there's no precedent for no menstrual cycle. If you, you would only lose your cycle if you are, you know, pregnant, breastfeeding or sick. So they put these women on and the first iteration was a continuous hormone. So they would just take it every day. And so they just stopped getting their periods. And so these women thought they were pregnant and some of them were actually trying to get pregnant. So they were, because there was part of it was also to like stop the cycle to like make it restart. So there was women in that group who actually wanted to get pregnant. So they were so excited and happy. And then the doctors had to like explain to them that they weren't. So the version that came out on the market when they decided to add in, say, the, you know, the, the four to seven sugar pills, that was so that women would take it, so that they would think they were still getting their period. Mm-hmm. So even from the very beginning, women were not really told about what it was doing to the body, what the mode of action was. And to this day, it is still described as a way to regulate the menstrual cycle. Women who are taking it say that they are getting their periods. And so (laughs) for any of the listeners who aren't aware, when you're on hormonal birth control, if you're getting a bleed every 28 days, it's not actually your period. In order to get a true menstrual period, you have to ovulate. And a true menstrual period is what happens after your natural hormones have really prepared that uterine lining and it's shedding. So what you're getting when you're on a hormonal method is a withdrawal bleed, except for the hormonal methods that do allow for ovulation, like I said, you know, with the gestin-releasing IUD. But even that, it's still a hormone that's affecting your cycles to some degree. So when it comes to, like, where does this fit into feminism, when you look at the side effects of the pill, isn't it ironic that the drug that's associated with sexual liberation of women also strips women of their libidos? And we have evidence that it shrinks the clitoris and thins the area of the vaginal opening so a certain percentage of women experience painful sex depression libido and anxiety are kind of some of the more commonly experienced side effects of the pill so the same drug that's supposed to be liberating us is also making it harder for us to orgasm Mm -hmm. and taking away our desire to have it so we have to be able to talk about that critically without i don't know like without really thinking that we're not being feminist for questioning it
2: Yeah, I never remember. And, you know, I got most of my birth control, especially when I was younger from Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood is like an incredible organization that I do strongly support still, but it's also, I didn't know that it would take a while to get my fertility back and to start ovulating again. I didn't know that I was going to just bleed for like nonstop. That's what happened when I was on, had the arm implant. I didn't know all of these things. And it was so infuriating to figure that out. And Why wasn't I told?
1: It's complicated, right? Like there's one research paper <laughs> that I quoted in the book, and it's so interesting because, well, first of all, the title or the intention of the research paper was determine the characteristics of women who complained about birth control. So I'm first I'm already on the offensive. I'm like, this is what you're study this is what you're choosing to study. But then when you actually look at what they're doing, so they had a group of women, you know, they had them on birth control, 50% of the women reported side effects and Instead of saying, okay, that's kind of high, that's a problem, the researchers came to the conclusion that it's hard for doctors to both inform the patients of the most effective methods and fully advise them of all the side effects without unduly discouraging them from using it. So there's this whole culture of not really wanting to tell women the full extent of the possible side effects from the birth control methods they're taking because they don't want to discourage them from taking them. Doctors are really well versed in the life-threatening side effects like deep vein thrombosis and stroke and if you have some of those known risk factors like if you smoke if you're over 35 then they'll be really on it and help you to maybe choose a different type of hormone right but in terms of actually advising you about all of the side effects
2: i'm just like thinking of those commercials where they advertise various like medicines for psoriasis or like whatever and then like at the very end they go through like all these side effects like super 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 fast and it's like shit I didn't even get that for birth control <laughs> yeah.
1: well and the thing is that it's all there in the inserts so if you actually get if you actually but who reads it right I know I've spoken to like very few women in my life whose practitioners actually opened the insert and went through like this very rare thing but the insert does go through the side effects i mean the language that they use is a little bit vague mood changes right (laughs) but but it's there so it's not something that that isn't known right
2: right and just curious because i don't know if it was like your instagram or someone else's that i follow on this topic and It was something along the lines of men are fertile every day. Like every day men can have sex (laughs) and plant their seed in someone and potentially create a baby. Whereas women are fertile one day a month because the egg that's released only lives 12 to 24 hours. And like for me, that was like, whoa, crazy that we're taking this thing that has a daily effect on us. But like we're fertile like 12 days of the year, give or take, depending on how long your cycles are.
1: Um, So to clarify that, so when I was going through like what the cycle looks like, Before ovulation, you're fertile in the days that you make your cervical fluid. Because when you have that, when you're producing it, the sperm can survive in your body up to five days. So I think that a lot of women have heard that though, like, oh, the sperm can live in your body up to five days, but they think it's like all the time. No, no, no. It's only in your fertile window. And so from a scientific standpoint, there's six days per cycle that you're fertile. And it's interesting, right? I remember when I first learned that... Men were the ones that are fertile all the time and I wasn't. And I went through that same logic as you did. I was like, well, because this was when I was first starting to be sexually active and I was considering what birth control method I wanted to use. And I had been on the pill for pain, but I hadn't used it as birth control. And I didn't really trust myself to take it consistently. So I really felt like I would always be nervous. So I was like, I'm gonna always use condoms anyway, so I may as well use condoms. And it was right around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. And it was like, wait a minute. So I'm only fertile for like a week. (laughs) And you want me to take this medication all the time. Now, I think what's really important about a discussion like this is that, because I can come across as like really anti birth control, (laughs) I think that it's the informed consent piece is really what's important. Because there are, I think women fall into three categories when they're given the full information about any drug that they're taking. So there's going to be some women that are like, whoa, this is like way too much for me and they won't just they just won't take it it's not right for them there's other women that'll say well good I'm so glad I know I'm still gonna take it and maybe they would modify their use so maybe instead of being on it for 20 years they'll be on it for like five and then they'll try something else and then there's women who are gonna take it just as long they're like thank you for telling me I didn't have side effects I'm good and that's all I think we all just need to be able to make the choice right
2: totally totally Hey there, I wanted to jump in here real quick to let you know about a brand new free workshop I've created. It's called the five-step strategy to banish anxiety and overwhelm in your love life so you can attract a fulfilling partnership and live a life of purpose. In the workshop, I break down exactly why you're in the dating pattern you're in, the number one reason why successful women specifically struggle in love, and of course, what to do about it, and how to take the confidence you feel in the rest of your life and apply it to your dating life. And of course, so much more. If you like my style, my philosophy, and how I coach women on the show, you're gonna love this workshop. I teach you the why and how behind a lot of what I do while even digging a bit into the science of love so you can begin to see real change in your own love life. It's really all of my best work in one place and you can access the free workshop right now. You don't have to spend years in therapy or read every damn book in the self-help aisle to dramatically transform your love life. If you feel like you have it all but love, this is 100% for you. So grab your free seat at veronicagrant.com forward slash workshop. And now back to the show. Has there ever been any kind of trying to create like male birth control?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, there was this study. Some of the listeners might have like already heard of it. it is really interesting. So they basically made a version of the shot for men. So they did the study, they gave men the shot. And then the men experienced essentially the same side effects as women do. So, you know, depression, erectile dysfunction, like low libido, anxiety. And there was actually one man in the study who killed himself and it was like assessed as not related to the study. Right. And I'm not saying that like in, in a good thing, cause that's horrible, but I'm just saying that that happened. Yeah. And so there was all these side effects that mirror the same ones that women experience. and a safety committee jumped in and like stopped the study midway and they said that it wasn't safe to continue. <laughs> so like, speaking of the patriarchy, it's like, oh so we can go through this for 60 years, like legit right now. It's been, is it 60 since the first pill came out? And which has been called by many feminists as the largest uncontrolled experiment in the history of the world. Gosh. Um, but so the men scary. can't even get through a study because they call it off because it's unsafe for them. Oh my God.
2: So I definitely want to start pivoting the conversation towards, okay, so what do we do about this? What are the options? But before we get there, you know, not all my clients are wanting to have kids. Some already have kids. But for many of them, that is definitely something that they desire in their life. So, Because I was always told, oh, yeah, birth control doesn't affect fertility. And that's not true, at least not completely true.
1: Yeah, I mean, so hormonal birth control is a, air quotes, reversible method of contraception. And so there's no evidence that there's a permanent negative impact on fertility and so that is why it's spoken about that way so when they look at the research you know fertility does return in a year or two depending on the study that you're looking at and depending on what they're measuring but what is not talked about and what is really downplayed is the temporary delay in the return of fertility so when you're taking hormonal birth control particularly long-term use, which is defined as two years or more in most of the research studies, the long-term use is associated with this temporary delay. So there's a period of subfertility. So there's different ways that it's measured. There was one study that was looking at how long it took the cycle to normalize. So they weren't looking at how long it took people to get pregnant. It was just looking at how long it took before the cycles of the women who had been using hormonal birth control looked like the ones that never did. And in that study, it took an average of nine to 12 cycles. And I always say, stress the word cycles, because nine to 12 cycles doesn't mean nine to 12 months, because when you come off the pill, some women, you know, ovulate 14 days after and start getting their period right away. Other women, it takes a month or a couple of months. So that nine to 12 cycles is more like 12 to 18 months for your average woman before everything kind of goes back to normal. So post pill, what's really common is uh, delayed ovulation. So longer cycles. And also a shorter luteal phase. So the second half of the cycle between when you ovulate and your period is supposed to be about two weeks, so about 12 to 14 days. And so it's really common post-pill for that phase of the cycle to be shorter. So nine days, eight days, 10 days. And when you're trying to get pregnant, you actually need to have a robust luteal phase of you know, 11 days or more is kind of ideal, because if it's not long enough, by the time that the egg is ready to implant, if you've successfully fertilized it, you're already having your period. So it's actually a crucial thing when you're trying to conceive to have a healthy, robust menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. There's other studies that look at how long it takes you to get pregnant. So the the time to pregnancy studies. And so for a woman who's on just the regular pill, like the combined um, synthetic estrogen, progestin pill, there was a, a few studies that I looked at where it took about twice as long. So your average couple, no hormones, everything is just fine, takes an average of about four cycles to to conceive, or four months in the study that I'm thinking about. And so, you know, after coming off, birth control was an average of eight months. So that means twice as long. I think this is why it's downplayed, because, you know, in about a year or a year and a half or two years most couples will eventually get pregnant. But when you have a woman who has been actively avoiding pregnancy for her entire adult life, who has been taught that pregnancy, like she's terrified of getting pregnant, right? Until she's ready to conceive. <laughs> you know, right? Like Because when you're actively avoiding and you're on birth control and you're, you know, using all the things, like you're really under the impression that Pregnancy is going to happen. Like I remember when I was in junior high and it was like, there's no safe days. You can get pregnant on every day of your cycle. And I really thought that it was like random, like pregnancy terror. Like I I really thought like, If you look at me the wrong way, I'm getting pregnant. So we yeah. have to have... Especially after
2: my two pregnancies, when I was on birth control, Like I was convinced, even if I had my period, I was convinced, well, that was just bleeding because you can bleed while you're pregnant. And I could yes. still convince myself <laughs> that I was yes. pregnant Like because I'd been in the swimming pool and there was men in the swimming pool. You know what I mean? Like I was just so <laughs> terrified because I didn't understand how anything worked.
1: Well, exactly. And so then, so picture this, because this is the work I do because I work with women you know, at these stages. And so you come off birth control and you're actually cool. Like the first month. So like the first month where you actually ovulate and have your period, you're good. Cause if you don't get pregnant, you're like, well, I was on the pill for a couple of years. It's it's fine. The second month, you're already starting to freak out a little. Yep. By the sixth month, you're in the doctor's office. So by the 12th month, when your cycles are finally starting to normalize, assuming that your ovulation came back and you've had several cycles up to that point. But by the time that you're actually like basically ready to get IVF, that is when your cycles are just normalizing. So this information I share not to try to scare anybody. I think that it's important information, though, because if you knew that there was a temporary period of subfertility and a lot of women, I've spoken to a number of women who actually went to their doctors and they're like, hey, I'm getting married next year we're going to start, you know, trying for a family, do you think I should come off the pill? And it's like, well, no, unless you want to get pregnant now. So being off the pill is associated with being pregnant. Right? (laughs) Those Those things are thought to be the same. And so they're really not being provided with that information that there is this temporary delay in the return of fertility. So it could be a good idea for you to come off the pill before you're ready. So what I say to my clients is come off the pill, when you're still actively avoiding I recommend quite a I suppose a longer time frame I recommend 18 months to two years but there's a reason for that Mm -hmm. and I would say particularly if you know that you did have cycle issues so for example if you were put on the pill like right after you started menstruating and you really don't know what your cycles were like. If you were put on the pill and you, because your cycles were really irregular and you didn't know when your cycles were coming or because you stopped menstruating. So if you're in one of those categories where you actually know there was an issue potentially with your cycle, or you barely even had any natural cycles, then you're at a greater risk. The pill doesn't help to fix anything. And so whatever was going on back then is still happening in the background. So if you had like every 60 days, you had a period and then you went on the pill when you come off the pill, you're at a greater risk of continuing to have every 60 days or even more because you didn't address whatever the problem was. So it's really like buying insurance. It's like you assume you hope for the best, but you just want to make sure that you give yourself a buffer period because okay. if you come off the pill and you're not actively trying and your period doesn't come back for six months and then it takes like, you know, six to eight cycles before everything really normalizes, then that can happen when you're not stressfully trying to get pregnant. Right.
2: Right. Right. I mean, what was frustrating for me is when I read about all of this, I was 33 wanting to start having kids soon. And I'm like, wait, I need potentially like a year plus to get potentially pregnant, to get normalized. And then, so now I'm like racing against kind of like the clock in a way that part to me was really infuriating. So, you know, for women who are listening and whether or not they're with a partner, but either want to have a baby on their own one day or meet a partner soon you know, just feels like if you think you might want a kid in the next couple of years to go ahead and come off and we'll talk about the fertility awareness method in in a second. But I just have one question. Once you start ovulating after you come off the pill, are you able to get pregnant or is there still like just some things that kind of need to come back online?
1: Yeah, that's a really important question because pregnancy is possible like in any cycle where there's ovulation. Okay. So, you know, when I'm having these conversations with my clients If you're coming off birth control and you're like, because I'm basically saying like, you know, insurance, come off of birth control before you're ready, just so that you can give your body time to relax and organize itself and all of that. But you have to vigilantly prevent pregnancy if you're not ready. Like you still would have to come up with an alternative method. You would still have to either use condoms or, you know, if you're planning to learn fertility awareness or diaphragm, cervical cap, a lot of couples use withdrawal method. I always say it because... It's like everyone's dirty little secret, but a lot of people use it. But whatever method that you're, you have to actually, so it's kind of like a myth that if my cycles aren't perfect, I can't get pregnant. So pregnancy can happen in any cycle with ovulation. And the fact of the matter is that a certain percentage of women do come off the pill, start ovulating immediately and get pregnant, even the first cycle. But the thing is that you just don't know what's going to happen with you. And that's kind of the hard part. So it's definitely possible, 100%. So if you're coming off of it, do not assume that you're subfertile or whatever. So you're not ready to have a baby like you know, double up, (laughs) sort yourself out. It is possible to prevent pregnancy without hormonal birth control. And I know a lot of women really doubt their capacity to do that, especially if they've been on the pill since they were in their early 20s and kind of associate being off the pill with getting pregnant. So I just want to say that because it is possible to have those conversations with your partner. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, men are fertile all the time. One of the ways that i Started kind of looking at the pill and talking about the pill and other hormonal birth control is that these birth control methods are making your body insensitive to sperm because really you can't get pregnant unless there's sperm in your body. (laughs) So the pill basically means that your partner can have sex and ejaculate inside of your body, and your body is resistant to the sperm, so it doesn't do anything. (laughs) When you're off the pill, your body isn't resistant to sperm anymore, but that doesn't mean that. that you can't figure this out. So there's ways to, right. I'm basically saying like, men step up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. So tell us about fertility awareness. I know that's like a huge topic and you work with women for months, but like, I just want like the, just so people know what we're talking about and can maybe make a decision if that might be a method they want to learn more about.
1: Yeah. I mean, fertility awareness is a way to avoid pregnancy by understanding what's happening in your cycle. So it's not the rhythm method, although a lot of people have kind of heard of that. And A lot of people would think, oh, this method doesn't work. This is like counting days on a calendar. So there's three main fertile signs that you pay attention to. Cervical fluid, basal body temperature. So taking your temperature every day first thing when you wake up in the morning, as well as cervical position. So what's interesting is that, you know, this is based on the biology and it's a scientifically backed method. There have been many studies that have looked at the effectiveness. And the effectiveness of the method is has been shown to be as high as 99.4% in one of the studies that looked at the symptothermal thermal method. So symptom meaning the symptoms like the mucus and the cervical position, and then obviously the temperature being the thermal part. So if you remember when we talked about the menstrual cycle, as you approach ovulation, you start to produce your cervical fluid. So with the fertility awareness method, depending there's many fertility awareness-based methods, but when you're looking at kind of like mucus plus temperature and all of that, you're paying attention to your cervical fluid, cervical mucus, I use those terms interchangeably, and you understand that your mucus is what keeps the sperm alive. So basically the days of mucus as you approach ovulation are your fertile days. You confirm ovulation with a combination of your mucus going away. So after ovulation, your mucus goes away. And after ovulation, you produce progesterone, which actually causes a thermogenic effect in the body. So it causes your baseline temperature to raise. So when you take your temperature every day, the temperature doesn't predict ovulation, but after you ovulate, the temperature actually rises and stays high. So if you're charting it in an app or on a paper chart, you can actually see this shift. And for the nerd and like the science geek in me, it's really awesome because your body's doing this. And then if you throw in your cervical position, so you'd have to actually insert your finger into your vagina, touch your cervix. So everyone isn't wanting to do that, but you know, it's an optional sign. But what's really interesting is that your cervix changes position based on what's happening with your hormones. So, as you approach ovulation, you're making all this estrogen. It softens the cervix, it causes it to be in a higher position. You can often feel an opening because it's open. It's like, sperm, come in here. And then after ovulation, it actually firms up, goes into a lower position in the vagina and often you'll feel like it feels more closed. So I remember that blew my mind when I first heard about the cervix and how it changes and how you can actually tell the temperature and the mucus. I was like, oh my gosh. Because then all of a sudden, although it seems like like you're letting go of control if you're not on a hormone that's making your body insensitive to sperm but you're really understanding your body and you're kind of understanding okay so I'm not fertile all the time okay there's certain times that I'm fertile oh and I can tell when that is and I can confirm when I ovulate it and I can actually have unprotected sex at certain times in my cycle and not get pregnant yeah how empowering is that
2: yeah I mean that's like that's so huge I just when it finally landed, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, after you ovulate, like there is no egg. You cannot get pregnant. Like,
1: it's impossible. Not
2: going to happen. Now, before you ovulate, it does feel like you need a little practice and probably some sort of teacher or coach just because like, you know, cause if you're trying to predict when ovulation is, it can shift a day or two a month. And so it feels well, like- Well, see,
1: I have to like jump in because, because okay. I am a teacher. Right. And the first thing I teach my clients is that you can't predict ovulation. And you don't have to in order for the method to work because the method isn't about predicting it. It's about understanding how to observe what's happening in your body. So primarily cervical fluid in this case. And if you see it, it means that you are fertile that day. So you're really observing. You can't control it. You can't control when you ovulate and you can't predict when you ovulate. So you have to be able to know which days of the cycle are fertile, which days aren't fertile. So, I mean, for me, when I first learned the method, I was really young. I was probably about 18 years old or so. It was like my first year of university. And that's when, I mean, that's why it's been almost 20 years of me doing this. And I was fortunate to learn among other women who were also educators. Some of them were in a training program. Some of them were like, you know, 30 years in fertility awareness educators, right? So I didn't have the experience of being 100% self-taught but what I do know is that when you're wanting to use this as your method of birth control, it is a really good idea to take class to make sure that you understand what you're doing because it works when you know how to use it. And it's important to just take the time to figure that out. Even women who would say that they were self-taught, nowadays there's you know facebook groups there's forums there's you know so even women who say that they're self-taught still you know they're still around other women who have more knowledge and experience in them so yeah i think that the highest efficacy like when you look at the studies and everything the women in the studies were trained by people who knew what they were doing so it's not like it's so hard to do and it's not like you can't read about it and learn it and start to understand it it's just that what you said like when you're really wanting to understand all the nuances, it is a good idea to, especially when you're like, okay, this is what I'm using and I want it to work for me. I just want to set people up for success.
2: Yeah, totally. And also it seems, I just want to make the point for, you know, women who then eventually do want to become pregnant, then you already know your cycle so well. And so then you like have sex the opposite times. Exactly. (laughs) And, And so much of like fertility podcasts and whatever is just, Women trying to figure out their damn cycles, <laughs> yeah. and trying to figure out when they're ovulating, and when you when you know exactly what to look for, then it's just so much easier when it and it's probably going to happen quicker when it comes, you know, to that point in someone's life. Really quick before we wrap up, I just want to ask a little bit about IVF and freezing eggs because that's a big thing that comes up. So, is there an age in which someone might want to strongly consider freezing eggs? Like, what are your thoughts on all of that?
1: I mean, I think that. If you're thinking about freezing your eggs, one thing to just think about just as a thought is that there are pretty strict rules for egg donors. So meaning that there's age cutoffs and all kinds of stuff that they go through. So if you're thinking about freezing your eggs, it's something that's kind of like the younger, the better. So if this is something that you're thinking of, depending on how old you are when you're listening to this, like if I was 25 right now, you know, that's something where... You would kind of, if you were, that makes it challenging because it's not cheap, it's expensive. You might not have the means at the age that would have been the best to do it. So that's something to think about. The way that I look at it is that if you start to have an understanding of your cycle and how it works, so freezing eggs is kind of like one way to certainly preserve your fertility. The reason being that as you get older, for example, if you needed to have IVF done, as you get older, the chances of it actually resulting in a live birth dramatically decrease based on the age of yourself. So the chances of IVF working when you're 20, 25, 30, 35 versus 40 or 45 are very, very different. And it is very rare that like, the chances of IVF working in your like early 40s is significantly lower than what it would be in your 30s. So from that perspective, yeah, if you're freezing your eggs, then you could then have a higher chance of a successful live birth if you needed IVF in your 40s, because you would be using maybe your 30-year-old eggs or something like that. So that's something to really keep in mind. But in the general sense, I think it's helpful just to understand. I think one of the things, because there's many, that are missing from our fertility kind of education or our reproductive education or sex education when we're growing up is that fertility changes with age. I can't tell you the number of women that I've spoken to who are maybe in their mid to late 30s who are still on birth control and who want to have a baby within the next couple of years but are still so terrified of an unplanned pregnancy that they won't even consider coming off the pill. And based on what the research has to say and you know, the temporary delay in the return of fertility plus the impact of aging on fertility and all that, And how long it could just take for your cycles to normalize. This is information that we need to know, right? Like we need to just know that it's not the same when you're in your 30s as it was when it was in your 20s. And it doesn't mean we still don't have to make sure we're using our birth control and figuring out how to manage our fertility. But I think that we should be having a different conversation when it comes to managing fertility. I think that if you know that you want to have children at some point in your life, and when you get into your early 30s, you should really start to consider what type of birth control method you want to use. I think that it's important to just have that conversation with yourself in your early 30s. If you do plan to have a baby at some point, you know, is hormonal birth control really the best option for me? Because one of the ways to preserve your fertility is just to cycle. So <laughs> yes, you can freeze your eggs. But one of the ways to preserve your fertility and to understand what's going on is to come off hormones and just cycle naturally and just see what's going on and just maintain a healthy body, healthy cycle, learn about how to increase egg quality and things like that. And, you know, like just instead of being on the hormones until the minute that you're ready to get pregnant.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so excited for my audience to listen. I think they're going to love it. So before I let you go, can you talk a little bit about your book and the work you do with women and how people can contact you if they want to learn more or work with you?
1: Sure. Thank you for that. So the book is The Fifth Vital Sign. It's available in all formats, the paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And essentially the topics that we talked about today, you know, fertility awareness, birth control, Coming off birth control, optimizing your cycle for fertility from a fertility awareness standpoint—you know, timing—and also improving eye quality. Age, like all of these topics are covered. It's like a beast. <laughs> it's a really good book. It it's really good. Well, and for your audience, if you can get the first chapter for free, thefifthvitalsignbook.com. So that's fun. And I actually just came out with a free e-course. It's what did I call it? Conceiving with fertility awareness. So for anyone who's listening who's like in that stage, fertilityfriday.com/freebies is where I put all my freebies. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share this information. For anyone who loves podcasts, I've got the Fertility Friday podcast. And I don't know when this is going to be released, but I almost have 300 episodes there. It's been a while, five years of talking about vaginas and (laughs) fertility.
2: (laughs) It'll be released soon. So it'll be still about 300 episodes. So, Well, thank you so much. This was so great. I so appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Love Life Connection podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode at veronicagrant.com forward slash podcast. And that's also the place you can sign up to be coached by me here on the show. And if you love this podcast, please leave a review over on Apple podcasts. It helps more incredible women like you find this show and find real love until next time. Remember wherever you are is exactly where you need to be. You're not broken and you don't need to be fixed. Just because you've never had the relationship you want before doesn't mean you can't have it now.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.